coming of the Lord and into eternity. Now, I'll rehash this again next week uh, to be sure, so don't think you have to grasp this now. But it is really important to see as the, the basic framework for the timeline of Revelation, and I should probably do it this way since you can see me, is the ascension of Jesus. So after his crucifixion, after his resurrection, and then you know, 40 days later, after appearing to over 500 eyewitnesses, Jesus ascends into heaven. And from that ascension to then his return, those are the two bookends, if you will, of this timeline in which Revelation takes place or, or of which a, re a Revelation speaks. So what we'll see in Revelation then is the exalted Christ at the center, the throne room of God, the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne at the center of the whole book of Revelation. And then what we're going to see once we get through the preliminary material is we're going to see cycles. For example, we're going to see um, preliminary information. We're going to have an introduction, an introductory vision of Jesus Christ. We're going to have seven letters to the seven churches, okay? And then we're going to begin and enter into these cycles. So um, one, way to, one way to think of this is cycle number one is going to be the first sevenfold vision. And this is going to be the, the vision of the, um, the well, the seven, uh, sorry, the echo's suddenly bothering me for a minute. We're talking about the opening of the seven seals of the seven scrolls. So what the opening of that first sevenfold vision, the opening of the seven seals, what we're going to see is that the events there really have to do with man's corruption of the world, of the creation, um, by way of sin that leads to curse and by way that, of sin and greed and exploitation and all the other things that make the world the miserable place that it is. What we're going to see as those, as those seals are open is, is we're going to see all these events. So we're going to see the world from the ascension of Jesus to the return of Jesus in this frame, one seal after another. And we're going to look at it in that frame. And then once that's over, what you're going to see is the, the seventh seal opens up to another cycle. This is going to be the, the second sevenfold vision, which is the angels with the trumpets. And so when they blow their trumpets, what are they doing? They're covering the same period of time that we just saw covered when the seals are open. And once again, that period of time is from the ascension of Jesus to the return of Jesus. What's going to be different is instead of focusing primarily on the problems that man causes, as we did in the opening of the seven seals, what we're going to see in the seven trumpets are natural disasters, um, which of course aren't natural. They're on the basis of the curse. And here viewed primarily as the disorder caused by the principalities and powers of darkness. And so the, the second cycle, the second set of uh, trumpet uh, blast is going to finally re uh, reveal um, the demonic powers that are. Okay, but again, what we're doing in Revelation then, it, and this is one of the big mistakes people have in reading it, is they read the whole thing as if it were just simply linear. So first come the 
first come the seals, then come the trumpets, and then down the line come the, the bowls or the, the incense bowls, the censers. Um, yeah, that's a mistake. Revelation is, is much more cyclical, much more three-dimensional. Again, we talked about this last week. Revelation isn't so much interested in a very tight chronological or logical presentation. It is creating a symphony. It is creating a three-dimensional painting. It is creating a vision complete with uh, sight and sound and to some extent uh, feeling and smells and uh, taste, all of the above. That's, it's a three-dimensional experience that it's creating. Part of this three-dimensionality is it's going to show you the thing and how the thing looks, the thing being from the ascension of Jesus to his return, how it looks from this angle. Okay, that's the first cycle. Then how it looks from this other angle. That's the next cycle. And then as we said, the, the third cycle, this sevenfold pouring out of the, the bowls of incense. Now, this focuses on God himself being the cause of uh, disasters and uh, sorrows and that sort of thing here on this earth. So um, again, what you have is in Revelation is this is what man does. This is what the curse and the demonic powers do. This is what God does over the course of these events. Now, you've got some major interludes stuck between those cycles, but if you see those cycles, then you're well on your way to understanding the overarching framework of Revelation and, and how this three-dimensional visionary experience is, is meant to be received and then meditated upon again and again. So, Revelation picks up and continues the story. You know, the first four Gospels are the story of Jesus, you know, incarnation to his ascension. Revelation picks up with his ascension and from, from the period of time from his ascension to his second coming. So that's one of the major reasons why we ought to think of Revelation as the fifth Gospel. It simply fits. And again, there's, there's some disagreement about this, but not so much within the Lutheran church, not so much within the first few centuries of Christianity. There's some disagreement about the authorship, but again, the earliest Christians and within the Lutheran tradition, it is pretty much solidly held that the same John who authored John's gospel then authors the book of Revelation. So as I mentioned last week, in the same way you see Luke and then acts as very much two pieces of the same theological work, you can see John and Revelation as two pieces of the same theological work, albeit in a very different direction than Luke acts. John Revelation um, changes genre such that what you find in Revelation is a very different uh, linguistic style, um, etc. Um, many stylistic features different than John. But what you do have in Revelation similar to John is a lot of the Christology and sort of the layer upon layer of depth and um, some of the, the analysis of like word usage, um, not so much being similar, but the idea of pattern word usage, certain numbers of words used certain numbers of time, that, times, that kind of thing can be seen in both John and Revelation. 
uh, for example, scattered throughout Revelation are seven beatitudes, right? So whoever's writing that, this large book is actually sitting there, it's like at some level or another is conscious of the fact there's going to be seven beatitudes spread throughout. You find that kind of thing in John's gospel. You find that kind of thing in Revelation. Okay, so that again hits the themes of, uh, or some of the major points of Revelation as the fifth gospel. And as I said, again, we're treading water. So some of this review, some of this a little more filled out. I'm going to pause and turn up my phone for a minute, see if anyone via our Zoom meeting wants to ask any questions or make any comments. Yeah, that's a great point. Turn this microphone back down, and then uh, for those of you just listening to the stream online, I'm, I assume you couldn't hear that question, but uh, David brought up a point that I've made at previous times where I've taught through Revelation, and that's that, you know, how do you wrap your head around this cyclical or repeating nature of, of Revelation structure? And one of, the way, one of the analogies that I've used in the past that David brought up again is if you think about, if you think about um, a football game and you think about a play and then you've got one camera angle and it, you know, it's showing this aspect and another camera angle suddenly reveals it's the same thing and yet it reveals something very different, a very different dynamic. And so you've got all these multiple camera angles on the one thing. And that is a, that's, a good, that's a good kind of device to, to open your mind to this way of like, hey, I can see the same thing quite differently. And, you know, it, again, by way of analogy, you might, even, you might even see things that are kind of like, if you're watching a football game, you might say, well, from this angle, it looks like he was in. From that angle, it looks like he was out. And so they look to be in contradiction, but of course they can't be in contradiction because the event itself happened. It's just that the camera angles happen to make it look like that. So you don't immediately say, hey, I'm turning this, I'm turning this football game off. Um, that there's something wrong with the cameras. No, you say, okay. And, and I think then by analogy, um, not that Revelation has a, uh, is particularly filled with these kinds of things, but when you find a tension of like, wait a minute, I thought in the previous vision it went like this, and now in this vision it's going like that. Like, think of those camera angles. Um, again, the, th the thing objectively in and of itself, there's no contradiction. But one camera shows one thing, another camera shows another. One cycle of sevens shows one thing, the other cycle of sevens shows another. Um, that's a, and again, there you see that Revelation isn't interested in being this tight, formulaic, logical type of thing. Arguably, at this level, by the way, we might as well talk about all the scriptures. The scriptures themselves are very rarely interested in this sort of tight logic and chronologic that we post-enlightenment, Western-minded, scientific-minded people really like and value and look for everywhere. The Bible just doesn't like and value it nearly as much as we do. 
Now, to be sure, there are places in Scripture where the logic is very tight and the, excuse me, and the chronology is very tight and um, historicity and facticity and, and the objective nature of things absolutely matter. Um, but there's, there's a much more relaxed way of speaking that is nonetheless 100% absolute truth, absolute objectivity being presented to us um, just in a way that, that is much, I hate to even say looser, but that's kind of how it seems from our perspective, much more artistic, flowing, beautiful, holistic, engaging all the senses rather than just this little logical core in our brains, you know, et cetera. That's what the Bible is doing. And people who just try to look at the Bible via the scientific method, you know, I mean, that's like trying to, that's like trying to read the manual for your VCR as poetry. It's a genre problem. You're not going to get anything out of it because you're going into it with entirely the wrong lens and expectation. So to, another way to put this would be to simply embrace the Bible on its own terms, humble yourself under it. It's that old axiom of Augustine that I quote pretty much every single Bible class I teach at some point, and that's crede ut intelligas, believe in order to understand. Submit yourself to what the scripture is saying, even if your reason recoils. Submit yourself to it, entrust yourself to it, believe, be filled with the Holy Spirit, and in due time, God will give you to see what you couldn't see before and um, give you to either uh, give answer to your reason and your objection or to see that your reason and your objection were in error the whole time, which is most frequently the case. Okay, well, thank you for that, David. I will... Uh, I need to keep an eye on the time. Oh, we've just got a few minutes left, so maybe I'll, maybe I'll fill that with a little bit more information here. Unless there's another burning question, I'll turn up for one split second. Okay, so with my last few minutes here, then I will simply reiterate the, the fifth and final point I made last week. Again, last week the major points were we talked about Revelation as the fifth gospel. We talked about the title being the Apocalypsis Jesu Christu, um, the revelation of Jesus Christ. He's both doing the revealing, as we'll see, and he is the content of the revelation, as we'll see. We talked about the rich Christology, and we're going to see that in spades next week when we get into chapter 1. It's just right there, right off the bat and all the way through. We get all kinds of names for Christ and data about Christ that we simply don't have in other biblical texts. We also see that Revelation is thoroughly, thoroughly liturgical. In fact, there's always an irony of teaching Revelation because our way of teaching Revelation is sort of classroom style, or at least we're in an adult Sunday school and um, we're not in the divine service. As we're going to see in the text itself, Revelation assumes that it's being comprehended, taught, meditated upon in the context of divine service. So Revelation, it's almost, it's almost laughably superficial to say that Revelation is liturgical. It absolutely is. The entire context is liturgical. But the deeper reality is that it's wedding the liturgy on earth that we participate in to the ongoing and everlasting liturgy in the heavenly places. And when you wrap your head around this, 
it ch it'll change your entire perception of the world around you. It'll change your entire perception of reality itself, and it'll bring you much much closer to what is objective and true. And that is, namely, that that heaven and earth are a cosmic liturgy, always in always in tune, uh, and always in in liturgical worship of the one Lord Jesus Christ, receiving His gifts and worshiping Him in, in praise, and in Him coming to know. Uh, the Father. Um, he reveals the Father to us. And so this idea of the cosmic liturgy extends well beyond the book, and it's really the way in which, I mean, in, in a, you know, in other religions, it's enlightenment. You suddenly see something that you hadn't seen before. You, your whole perception shifts and changes, and you see the world in a different way. Um, whatever truth or half-truth there may be in those ex other experiences, what Revelation intends to give us is true objective enlightenment, enlightening us over and over and over again and more and more thoroughly until we see the world around us as it is. It's a cosmic liturgy. We also talked then last week, the fourth point about the apocalyptic genre and how to avoid really silly, foolish readings like the armored locusts are quite obviously Black Hawk helicopters. Um, oh, wait, no, that technology's antiquated. Okay, what are they now? Drones, obviously. You know, and all this nonsense, in 50 years it'll be something different. All of this comes from not understanding the genre in which Revelation is written, that being the apocalyptic genre. And one of the things I'll do, even as we get into chapter one, it'll be a bit tedious. Um, we'll have to flip through the Bible, and we're going to go back and look at some passages from Daniel, some passages from Ezekiel, and we'll see that what John is writing has a grounding in earlier biblical documents, and those documents are in the apocalyptic genre. Okay? Um, it's a, it, the apocalyptic genre might be hard to describe in the same way that poetry is sort of hard to describe. What do you, how do you describe poetry? Like beautiful words, uh, words that occasionally rhyme? You know, it's, it's, so it's, it's nebulous. It's just you know it when you see it, and um, you can certainly define aspects of it. The apocalyptic genre is the same. And so in the apocalyptic genre, you, you, know, you frequently have things like um, angels and uh, numerology, great Im symbolic import put on... Um, numbers, great uh, symbolic import put on animals and beasts and dragons and, as I said, angels and this kind of thing. Um, and then and you even have like the, the, uh, the apocalyptic genre is outside of the canon of scripture and inside the canon of scripture. And so to get a context for revelation as um, apocalyptic genre really begins to safeguard you from the very out there interpretations of Revelation that you hear where, you know, it's like a guy's got his, uh, you know, Apple News app open and running and uh, over here and then his, his Revelation book over here and he's trying to line these things up. I mean, once you realize that Revelation is, um, follows the apocalyptic genre, uh, you, you just can't do that anymore. It's, it's just ridiculous, you know. Um, so then, that was the fourth point. And then the fifth point is like, what's the point and purpose of Revelation? And I gave this the shortest shrift last week simply because the point and purpose is ideally going to be manifest in the weeks to come as we go through the text. But to put it succinctly, and, and I think um, Brighton does a good job here, the message of Revelation reveals two ongoing phenomena 
the terrifying sufferings and horror on earth, and the reign of Jesus Christ as Lord in his heavenly exalted glory. Brighton continues, as these two phenomena are described, God's people on earth are encouraged to cling in hopeful faith to the eternal heavenly glory that beckons them in Christ. So as I mentioned very briefly, one of the major themes of Revelation is like, yeah, terrible things happen on this earth for a whole bunch of causes. There's a whole bunch of stuff going on. But one of the most comforting things is that all of these things are in God's hands. He's surprised by none of it, um, and he's in control of all of it. And he sets the boundaries for evil. He sets the boundaries um, for disasters. He sets the boundaries even of his own wrath. And then we may marvel at how he bends and uses these things even to his own good purposes so that men who have hardened hearts would have those hearts of stone broken and then would hear his gospel, the forgiveness of sins in Christ Jesus and repenting, receive that forgiveness of sins in faith and so be saved so as not to be drugged down into the abyss with the devil and all his angels, but rather to be elevated and raised up with Christ Jesus in the resurrection of our bodies and the inheritance of the new heavens and the new earth. So as I like to put it in my own kind of you know, idiosyncratic way, to be sure, message number one is bad things happen, but God's in control and he's using them for his purposes. And, then, and so our response to that, obviously, as I said, is repent and believe. And that then ties in with point two, and point two very simply, again, in my own idiosyncratic way of putting it, point two of Revelation is really this. God wins, and we don't need to get ourselves wrapped around this paradoxical theology of the cross way of thinking where, you know, losing is winning. In Revelation, winning is winning, and we're actually encouraged to think of things just very simplistically. Um, when God wins, it's a good thing. When he destroys the devil, it's a good thing. When man refuses to repent, refuses to be on God's side and allies himself with the devil and is thus destroyed by God, that's a good thing. It's a good thing when good prevails. It's a good thing when justice prevails. It's a good thing when mercy prevails. It's a good thing when God prevails. And we need to understand that we're in it to win it. <laughs> we're not, I mean... I understand that now is Good Friday and now is losing and now is being humbled, but the time is coming for us to be exalted. Um, the time is coming for us to uh, be victorious with Christ and the time is coming for Easter and cosmic eternal Easter celebration and joy where under our feet will lie sin, death, the devil, and all who allied themselves with these things. And as you're going to see, that causes rejoicing and revelation amongst the saints of God. So this is a really cleansing, healing type of, I mean, it's so strange to say, but message we get in Revelation that right is right and good is good, and in the end, God is both and he wins. And we want to be on his side. We are on his side. That's who we are as his children. And yes, there are sides. And yes, the fact that evil loses is wonderful and bless it, and we pray that God would hasten the day. So that's ultimately the fulfillment of uh, the last petition of the Lord's Prayer, deliver us from evil, or more accurately, deliver us from the evil one, 
this prayer reaches its final culmination and end in the events that Revelation depicts, where Satan is cast into the lake of fire and shut out in utter darkness forever, uh, to the great rejoicing of saints and angels and the whole household and family of God. So again, we're going to see these themes in spades, and uh, I think it's really refreshing, really wonderful. We sometimes get ourselves in a browbeaten mindset. Um, and I understand there's perversions of the victorious Christian mindset, quote unquote. I understand there's perversions. But what we're going to see in Revelation is we're going to see a biblical version. And we're going to see something that we can embrace ourselves as Christ-centered, uh, cross-focused people. We can um, love and rejoice in that victory God gives us. So anyway, I hope you'll be able to join us next week when we're through with our technological difficulties. Thank you for your patience, for treading water with us this week. We will jump into the new material next week so that, again, if you're just looking at this series now or if you're looking at this series in the future, uh, number one, which we did last week, and number two, which we'll do next week, will just be seamless and in continuity with one another. May the Lord bless you, keep you healthy and safe. If there's anything you need, don't hesitate to reach out to me at the church by uh, phone or by email. Um, if you're interested in attending services, we have to cap our attendance at 10. Again, you need to be healthy. You can't be sick. If you're in a weakened physical state, you know, don't come for your own safety at this time. But reach out to me via email on Monday. Let me know about the next week's services if you want to join. Um, we're doing a 7, a 10, and uh, a 7 and 8. Uh, excuse me. No, yeah. 7 a.m. is on Thursday. We're doing an 8 a.m. on Sunday and a 10.30 on Sunday. And then if there's more, we'll do a few more services on Sunday. So anyway, that's the idea. If, uh, if you need anything, give me a call. God's peace to you, and uh, the Lord be with you.